1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 to 34, and also chapter 17, verse 1. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel, and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made, Asher, made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sagub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spake by Joshua, the son of Nun. Chapter 17. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would take our hearts in your hands now, and that you would work with your Holy Spirit, that you would conform us to your word and to your will, that you would make us more like you, that you would teach us of your righteousness, of your holiness and your justice, that you would bring us into your character and into your will, that we would understand your heart. I pray for the preaching, God, that you would give Pastor Paul grace and wisdom as he expounds on your word for us this morning. God, give us ears that we would be attentive, that we would understand. God, give us a willing heart that as our king and our captain, God, we would submit to you in all that we find in your word, that we would not pick and choose, but we would allow your whole word to speak to us, to change us, to set us on our course, and to teach us our doctrines. So God, we appeal to you. We beg you and beseech you, God, that you would make us different when we leave here through the preaching of your word and through worship and prayer and giving, different than we were when we came in. God, we ask this in the holy and the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to turn our attention now for the next number of weeks to uh, the book of First and Second Kings, and uh, in particular, the life of Elijah. And we've called the series, When Conformity is Not an Option. I had a second sort of subtitle, which was Living in Baal Kissing Prophet Killing Times. Um, because at the end of, uh, or in chapter 19 at verse 18, uh, there were only 7,000 who had not kissed Baal. And uh, as you know, Jezebel set out to slaughter the prophets of God. And so these were unsettling times. Of course, there's a general call that goes out to us to not be conformed to the world. Uh, we find that in Romans chapter 12, um, verse 2, do not be conformed to the world. And I think it helps to ask that question once in a while, is it ever an option? Is it ever right that we conform our lives in any way to the world? Are we ever to blend in chameleon-like uh, with the world around us? And I 
think most of us who have thought about it and are walking the Christian road would say, no, there is never a time in which conformity to the world is an option. I think Romans chapter 2 is illustrated in the book of Kings in the life of Elijah. There was considerable pressure for Elijah and the people of Israel to conform, to conform to the worship of Baal and all the so-called benefits that come from worshiping that false god. Even uh, to the point where if you didn't conform to that particular form of worship that had encaptured uh, Israel at that time, the results could be at worst deadly for you physically in the loss of life and certainly spiritually in the loss of heaven. As far as Elijah is concerned, though, we will find that conformity is not an option. I don't think it ever crossed Elijah's mind that he would um, buy into what had been introduced to the nation of Israel. And I don't think it was an option to uh, Elijah because um, the road to conformity with the world, I think, always passes through the toll booth of idolatry. And that's the only way that you can find yourself conforming to the world is, you, if, you, is if you embrace the idolatry that's in the world. The world wants our hearts. I hope you know that. The, the world is out for the affection of your heart. The things of the world are constantly tugging at our hearts. And I think, unfortunately, we seem to be so um, affected by the allure of idolatry. It's all over the place. We find it in institutions. We find it in the culture around us. We find it in economics. We find it in our national identity. It would seem to me that the first three commands of the Bible make it clear that we're not to have any gods before us, that we're not to make any image of any gods before us, that we're not to bow down and worship before any other god. And so, as far as I can see in the Scripture, idolatry is never an option for anyone. But I think sometimes amongst the people of God today, I sometimes wonder if we convinced ourselves that idolatry isn't an issue. We've come to this point primarily because we don't have these things that we stick on our mantles. We don't go cut down a cherry tree in our backyard and out of it carve a little bit of an idol that we set on our barbecue and the rest use for firewood for the rest of the year. We don't do that kind of thing and so we think, well, this is really, that's not my issue any longer. That's not our issue as the people of God any longer. That's just something that belongs to a long time ago when people were really primitive. And we come to a book like Elijah, for example, and we say, really? That's 2,600 years ago. What relevance can that have to me today? And that kind of idolatry and that kind of idol worship really has nothing to say to my life today. But we deceive ourselves. Because as John Calvin says, our hearts are idol factories. Idolatry is an issue of the heart as much as it is an issue of the culture in which we live. We have stubborn and rebellious hearts that are constantly looking for things to trust in other than God. And we might say verbally, oh, I trust in God. But the reality of our lives is we trust in so many things other than God. And our trust in those things betray our confession of our mouth of trust in God. We trust in our cities. We trust in men and women around us. We trust in our health. To preserve us. We trust in our medicines to sustain us. We trust in our militaries to protect us. We trust in our wealth and abundance to keep us until the day that we die. 
our gods are accessed through the various screens that fill our home and that we carry around with us all day long. Our gods are accessed through the cards that bulge our wallets. Our gods are attested by the things that occupy our time, that consume our thoughts, and that mark our priorities. Our gods are made of plastic, of fiberglass, of metal, or of nature. Idolatry is as much a problem today as it was 2,600 years ago. And Paul would say that it's something that needs to be put to death. In Colossians, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Did you, did you catch what Paul says there? Covetousness is idolatry. I don't think covetousness is an issue of 2,600 years ago. I think covetousness is an issue of today. And if it is, then idolatry is an issue of today. John Piper says this. He says, so what idolatry looks like today is the activity of the human heart. This is not a deed of the body. That follows a fruit on a branch. But it starts in the heart, a craving, a wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. That is an idol. Paul calls this covetousness, a disordered love or desire. I wonder if that's in the DSM or whatever it is, 5 edition. Loving more, 6, I knew there was another edition. That's fine, thanks, well. Loving, uh, loving more than God what ought to be loved less than God and only for the sake of God. But covetousness is the condition that this disordered heart is into. It's an act of loving too much what ought to be loved less. That is what idolatry looks like today. And it is everywhere in our culture. So idolatry is a heart issue. But notice something else. And it helps us understand, I think, one of the, some of the phrases we'll find in 1 Kings and also a lot of the language we can read in the whole of the Old Testament when writers talk about idolatry. It provokes God to anger. God is a jealous God. He wants us for himself. He wants our worship. He wants our trust. He wants our confidence. He wants it for ourselves. And when we place that trust and confidence in things other than God, it provokes God to anger. That's what Paul says in Colossians. He says, on account of these things, covetousness, which is idolatry, the wrath of God is coming. I think in part that's what helps us understand Paul being so troubled when he walked into Athens. He was troubled by these people worshiping other gods, but I think part of the reason he was troubled was he understood that idolatry brings about the wrath of God. And I think that's in part why John, at the end of uh, his first epistle to John, writes at the end of it, it's a very strange way to conclude a book, little children, guard yourselves or keep yourselves from idolatry. It's like, oh, I got to remind them again of this issue. And so this is why 1 Kings is instructive for us today. Loved ones, these chapters in 1 Kings, as we will find out, are not just history. They're also prophecy. They don't just tell us what actually happened around 850 BC. They tell us what continues to happen in 2018 AD. 
And so we need to get our bearings. And as we get our bearings, some of this stuff might bore some of you. But I've left a lot out because it doesn't bore me, but I'll give you just the little bits of it. We need to find out where we are in the Bible. If you're reading in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the LXX, you will find that they arrange the books of the Bible differently. And they place the book of Kings amongst the historical books. And so they treat it not only as history, but that's the section of the Bible they put it in. So this is the history of the kings of Israel. But if you go to the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, and read the the Masoretic text, you find that the authors there put the book of Kings in prophecy just after the first five books of the Bible. And that tells us something about how we ought to read the book of 1 Kings. We read it as history, as I already mentioned, and we read it as prophecy. Neither is wrong. Both are instructive. The book of Kings covers about 400 years of history. It starts with uh, right around the death of David, and then it goes to uh, about 587 when uh, the, uh, um, uh, the people of Judah are taken into exile into Babylon. 400 years, written in about 50,000 words. I don't know if you've done any reading about Canada's history. We've just covered 150 years. I bet you that in a single book alone, of which there are likely hundreds of that period, there are way more than 50,000 words. So God is being succinct here. There are many things that we would like to know, many things that would interest us, but that aren't included here in the book of First and Second Kings, which originally was one whole book. And I think that should remind us then, or should point out to us, that what is here is here for a very specific reason and purpose, and that we ought to listen carefully to what God is wanting us to learn from 400 years of history. There are no wasted words. The selection of the material is significant. These are notes that God wants to sound. We need to listen. May God give us ears to see as we work our way through these various chapters. A couple more things to keep in mind. First, the events that we're looking at now in Kings are historical events, and they actually happen from about 850 to 775 BC, covered about 75 years, give or take. That's including the life of Elijah. So it matters that we think that these, this is actual history, that we know this is actual history, and that you can find events recorded about these days in the secular historians of the days. So this is actually history. You could set a time machine if there were such a thing and say, I want to go to Samaria in 850 BC, and you would find yourself in the middle of hell. Because that's what these days were. Secondly, though, I think it's important to understand that these events were not finally recorded until 550 BC. I think by a single author. Now that is also instructive. Because what was going on with the people of Israel at 550 BC? They were in Babylon in exile. And so this book was written and first read to the people of Israel who were now experiencing the consequences of their rejection of God, and we're now in exile. So it's really important that you read the book of Kings not only from a historical perspective, but also from the perspective of when it was written and to who would have heard it first. And then thirdly, you find references to Elijah and Elijah dotted throughout the New Testament, which 
helps me see that this book is prophecy and this book has ongoing impact because this is part of the living word of God. It never loses its power. It never loses its application. And so it is for you and I today. So it's important when you read the book of 1 Kings over the next few weeks with me, and you might want to read it on your own to understand those three things about the book of Kings. Enough of preliminaries now. I hope I didn't bore you too much. But you just when you start a new series, you've got to put things in a context, and that's a bit of the context. Here we are now. Omri has died. Omri was Ahab's father. There is a new king in Samaria, and his name is Ahab. Interesting just to think about Samaria. You read in the New Testament all about Samaritans and Samaria. Well, Samaria was established by Ahab's father, who bought a hill from a particular guy, and he built a new capital there. And so Ahab now has inherited this new capital, Samaria. It's really clear that we are entering into a new era Sometimes events transpire in history that when we look back on them, we say, wow, that just ushered in a whole new way of thinking, a whole new era. We can look at it in political uh, aspects. Sometimes you have one prime minister after another, nothing really changes. And all of a sudden, there's a prime minister that does something so significant that we look, whoa, they just entered us into a new era. Era? Era? Um, Not ear, era. I think we could say safely that cell phones have introduced us to a new era. They're only 10, 12 years old, but they are significantly changing the landscape of culture. And in many ways, for the worse. As more and more things come out about cell phones, we can realize that cell phones are having a disastrous effect on us physically, on us mentally, and on us morally. And we can rightly, I think, look back already and say cell phones have introduced us or brought us into a new era. So that's what we mean when we talk about Ahab. Ahab marks the begin of a new era. He started reigning in about 874 uh, B.C. And he reigned for about 22 years, which was uh, for the kings of Israel quite a long time. His dad only reigned for 12 years. The fellow before his dad reigned for seven days. Uh, The fellow before that guy reigned for two years. And so here we've got a king that is reigning for 22 years. And with him, and in this new era, the nation of Israel took a definite turn in the road. There's one more significant clue from the text itself that tells us we are in a new era. There's a, a, a momentous shift in the pace at which the history is written. It's kind of like when somebody is talking really fast and all of a sudden they slow down. That's exactly what happens here in the text. We have short paragraph after short paragraph after short paragraph, primarily of kings, and all of a sudden we come to Ahab and six chapters are given to Ahab. And if we include Elijah, which takes us to the end of 2 Kings chapter 13, the whole book of Kings is 47 chapters. 20 of those chapters are given to about 80 years. There's something going on here that ought to catch our attention as a reader of the Bible. And we ought to think, okay, what is God signaling to us here? There is a signal. We are looking at an important juncture in history but not a good one. 
In fact, it looks like Antichrist has drifted by and has cast his shadow over the land of Israel. And it's as though though Antichrist has shown up early. God obviously regarded the threat posed by Baal worship as so serious that it required a decisive and quite distinct answer. And so he's going to reveal the emptiness of its promises of the invading paganism, the deceptiveness of its charm that so captivated the people of Israel. He would break its power and its influence. He would prove to his people beyond all shadow of a doubt that he was alone powerful enough to deliver his people in that day. He was the same God that delivered his people from the hands of Egypt. He would deliver them in many ways. He would deliver them nationally and he would also deliver them individually. God would defeat kings around them, but he would also make sure that a widow's oil would not run out till the famine was over. He would undermine every aspect of Baal worship that they had come to stake their lives on. It's the same with Jesus. Same kind of point. Jesus comes and introduces the kingdom of God. And he says, the kingdom of God is now amongst you. And we see that the kingdom of God will displace nations. In fact, it will displace every nation. It is a powerful, it is a world, it is a universal kingdom. But it also has individual ramifications. And that he prays for the dead and they are raised. He prays for the blind and their eyes can see. He prays for the, uh, for the sick and they are healed. So not only is it national, but it's also individual. We see those things being played out here in the text. So again, how do we bridge 2,700 years, 10,700 kilometers, different political systems? How do we bridge those gaps? I think we do it because we have confidence that the Word of God is the living Word of God. And so we begin um, with the days of Ahab as evil days. And I mean really, really evil days. At first glance, though, we might not think so. His was a long reign, as I already indicated, um, 22 years. Uh, He settled into this new capital that uh, his father had built, and so he's continuing his father's footsteps. He marries a wife, Jezebel. And I've been thinking about this all week. Um, I don't know of any, I hope there's no one here, I don't know of any parent who has ever named their daughter Jezebel. It just has a history to it that, that we just don't want to attach to it, as is I don't think I know any parent who has named their son Judas. But he marries a young Phoenician princess. Likely a arranged marriage, but one that has had its benefits. Its benefits were certainly economic. Israel now had access to two significant ports in Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon. They could get their goods out to more markets. They could bring goods in from a wider variety of markets. The Samaritan Chronicle might have printed up the story after a couple years of Ahab and Jezebel's reign and say, wow, look at what's been accomplished. It's about time we had a government that knew what we needed and has gone about and doing what they promised and has opened up all these markets to us. Man, life is good. What's not to love about Ahab and Jezebel and their reign over us? But we ask her, is there another perspective? Is there anybody that has anything else to say about this situation? Well, we look at verse 30 and we realize how startling it is. Many of you read obituaries. I'm not sure why we're fascinated with obituaries. I read them this past weekend. But we, we want to know when they were born. And we, oh, I was born then. Wow. 
Um, we want to know if it tells anything about how they died. We want to know if it talks about when their service is going to be, what they've accomplished. And um, they're, they're always quite uh, nice. I don't imagine that the Samaritan Chronicle would have ever printed something like verse 30, and Ahab, son of Omri, did evil in the sight of God more than were all that were before him. This is evil on steroids. This is saying that this guy really, really pushed evil to its limits. They are frightening words, and we, we want to ask ourselves, well, what is it? What could somebody have done that would earn them that kind of epithet or that kind of arbitrary? What, what does somebody have to do to say they were more evil than anyone who ever came before them? We don't have to look far to find out. It begins in verse 31 where it says, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Netbat. In other words, the writer is saying it, it was no big deal. It was a trivial matter for him to follow in the sins of Jeroboam. Well, who was Jeroboam? Jeroboam was the first king of the Israelite kingdom. He was a king that was worried that the people of Israel would go to Jerusalem and would um, fall in love with Jerusalem and the people of uh, Judah and would no longer follow him. And so he said, well, I'm going to build myself two golden bulls and I'm going to place them at the different ends of my kingdom so that people can worship God there. They don't have to worship in Jerusalem or God has said they need to worship in the way that God has said they need to worship. I'll give them an alternative. And he institutionalized idolatry amongst the people of Israel. And God said of Jeroboam, you have done evil above all who were before you and have gone and made for yourself other gods and metal Im images. And here's this phrase, provoking me to anger and have cast me behind your back. I love that particular phrase when it refers to what God has done with my sin. And Isaiah the prophet says that God has cast our sins behind his back. What does that mean? Uh, we, we know that God doesn't forget anything. But when you've got something behind your back, you don't see it, you often don't think about it, you don't remember it, it's behind your back. And you're walking in a different direction, you're facing a different direction. And that's how God views us when he views our sins. He puts them behind his back. They're out of his mind. They're out of before his face. Well, this is what Jeroboam had done with God. He had cast God behind his back as though God didn't exist any longer. It's as though God has said to Jeroboam, you put me out of your sight. And from one vivid picture to another vivid word picture, one described the contrasting picture between Jeroboam's idolatry and Ahab's idolatry this way. Jeroboam's state cult is like drinking polluted water. Ahab's imported paganism is like sucking raw sewage. For Ahab, Jeroboam's sin was a trivial matter. The big deal was this. He took Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. It's Baal worship that so provoked God. It is idolatry that so provoked God. And Ahab dove in with all that he had into idolatry and brought the people with him into that idolatrous worship. 
That's why he earned the title number one provoker of God. Verse 31 to 33 opens a door that shows all hell being let loose in the nation of Israel. His father-in-law's name was Ethbaal. That means Baal lives. And Ahab came to believe that. He came to believe that Baal was alive. So much so that he served Baal, that he worshipped Baal, that he built a temple for Baal, that he built an altar to Baal, that he made an Asherah pole and placed it beside the altar. And the people of Israel had little resistance to this. Probably because it was made so prominent and probably because they realized that if you didn't worship Baal, there could be severe consequences for you. It might have been, though, that they were really unaffected by this new religion, or so they thought initially. After all, as they said, their lives were pretty enhanced by the worship of Baal and its introduction into their culture. They had access to jobs that they didn't have before. They had access to products and services that they didn't have access to before. They had markets for their goods that they didn't have access to before. Who was Baal? He was the storm god. Every time I uh, read that and think of that, I think of that song, Riders on the Storm. And I wonder, is that, was that a reference to Baal worship? But Baal was understood as the storm god. He was really high up in the Canaanite pantheon of gods. Baal worshippers believed that he um, sent the dew and sent the rain. They believed that he was the giver of life. They believed that because of him and if they worshipped him, their lambs or their sheep would lamb. Is that the right way to put it? Their, their wives would bear children, that their pro- products or their crops would produce um, greater crops. And uh, they understood him as the, the one over uh, the weather, as the one over life. And so they worshipped him. He was responsible for the annual crop cycle um, and, and uh, that's why they worshipped him. And as we will see, every one of the miracles in Elijah's time were direct attacks on what the people thought Baal offered them. It was a worship, or is a lethal kind of worship in so many different ways. And the trouble in Israel was Jezebel. And Ahab's love for Jezebel or his uh, uh, endurance of Jezebel, she wasn't happy with a private commitment to worship. She wasn't just happy to worship Baal in her own house and in her own home. She wanted to make it the national religion of all of Israel at that time. She brought in hundreds of prophets and she fed them at her table. They built altars uh, to Baal. They built houses to Baal. They moved the high places down to the low places. They slaughtered the prophets of God, whoever they could lay their hands on. She moved Israel's tolerance of worship to an idol. As one wrote, she practiced worldview Baalism. It's all or nothing. He's the one that provides for everything that we need. And you can just feel the evil that is being cast by the shadow of Antichrist as he flutters by the land of Israel. Ahab did more to provoke the God or the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then notice verse 34. If you read your Bibles or you listen to as Chris read it, 
in his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Does that verse seem out of place to you? Yeah, we're, we're, we're talking about um, Ahab, and we're talking about evil and idolatry, and all of a sudden this verse is stuck in there about Jericho and something about rebuilding the walls of Jericho. What's this curse that was spoken 430 years ago? What does that have to do with anything that's taking place now in 850 B.C.? Well, the rebuilding of Jericho happened in Ahab's days. It tells us uh, that, that very clearly. It says, in his days. In whose days? In Ahab's days. Ahab at least gave it tacit permission, if not actually promoted the rebuilding of Jericho's walls. And why would he have done that? Because Jericho was at a strategic spot in Israel. A lot of traffic came through. It would be a great defense if armies were coming in to attack the land. So from Ahab's point of view, he thought, well, I need to build this, uh, this city. Maybe he put out a contract and Hael was the one who won the contract. Or maybe Hael came to him and said, you know, I, I want to rebuild the, the, the walls of Jericho. But he should have read the fine print. After Joshua and the Israelites had witnessed God's destruction of the walls of, and the city of Jericho, Joshua spoke this word of God. Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn, he shall lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest shall he set up his gates. Word spoken 550 years before this actually happened. You say to yourself, who in their right mind would ever defy the word of God? Ahab. This typified Ahab's reign. He didn't care. He didn't give a rip. The word of God didn't matter to him. And the author made it clear that the loss of the oldest and the youngest sons was according to the word of the Lord which he had spoken to Joshua. I think this verse here is the author's way of telling us that this typified the reign of Ahab. Here is a significant note on the spiritual pulse of this new era. It was a time when God's word didn't count. This is really something that we should listen to. Because I think sometimes we live in days when even we don't think that God's word counts. We've heard it so many times. We're so familiar with it. Maybe 550 years has passed. 400 years has passed. 10 years has passed. 2 years has passed. A month has passed and God's word hasn't come to pass. And so we begin to find ourselves living as though God has not spoken. I think we need to be reminded that we ought not to live as though God's word didn't count. Just because his word has not been fulfilled yet, even after hundreds of years, is no reason to play fast and loose with it. But there's a positive on the other side of that, that if you are hoping in the word of God, if you are trusting in the word of God, if you are banking on a promise of the word of God, know that it will come to pass. Know that God will be true to his word. Know that he will never, ever Back down on his word. He can't. And so there's a flip side to it. 
Loved ones, we do live in evil times. And the shadow of Antichrist is now cast over, I believe, our world. Not just a particular spot in our world. And I think sometimes we catch ourselves, you know, I, I just don't think it can get any worse than this. I don't think it can get any more evil than this. And then we see evil in a way we have never seen it before and we say, wow. Just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, it has gotten significantly worse. The Bible tells us Satan is raging because he knows his time is short. Evil is flourishing. I think this text, though, helps us to think about, but don't worry, don't despair, don't lose hope. Why? Because Jesus knows where we live. Jesus knows our times. Jesus knows the uh, beginning from the end, the end from the beginning. He says to the church in Pergamum, and I love this, I know where you live. This is his omniscience. This is his knowledge of uh, the intimate details of our life. He knows where we live. And of Pergamon, he says, where Satan's throne is. We can live in the most evil times, in the most evil place of those evil times, and God knows where we are. I find that encouraging from this text. Finally, we come to verse 1 of chapter 17. I just wrote in my notes, suddenly, out of nowhere, Elijah. And I wasn't the only one who detected this. As I went through some of my commentaries, others commented on this. I hope you know, first of all, that, um, that the chapter divisions and the verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. They were added hundreds of years after the text was actually put together. They have been there. They're very helpful. Uh, they're often right, but they're not always right. And I think in this particular place, I, I'm not convinced that they are where they should be. 17.1 uh, should follow right on the heels of 16.34. Don't you find this strange? Out of nowhere, Elijah. First out of nowhere, this, this curse on, on Jericho. And now out of nowhere, Elijah. There's nothing that prepares us for him. There's no biographical information. Um, there's, there's nothing, uh, no introduction to him. There's no history about his ministry. We don't know where he went to school. We don't know about his wife, if he had one. We don't know anything about his children, if he had any. We don't know his parents. We don't know anything about him. He just shows up. It reminds me, when things are really, really bad, God is still in control. The Bible tells us, before the end of the age, and we're living between two ages. Uh, we're, we're living in the last age. And that age is defined by the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ when Christ shall come in all of his power and glory. The Bible tells us that before the end of the age, before Christ returns, this world is going to implode with evil. I was rereading Matthew chapter 24 today um, because it was in, just in my Bible reading plan. It talks there of natural disasters, of moral chaos, of great tribulation. And then it says, and that's just the start. The book of Revelation reminds us that the days will get continually more evil. And our experience of that evil will increase intensely until Jesus returns. The difference between Ahab's day and our day is we know the end. People of Israel didn't know that Elijah was going to show up. You and I know that Jesus is going to show up. We don't know when 
And we shouldn't concern ourselves with when. And it troubles me that the people of God spend more time trying to predict when Jesus is coming back than preparing for Jesus to come back. We don't know when he's coming back. Jesus says so clearly, nobody knows. No angels, not even me. Only your heavenly father knows. But this is how you ought to live in light of his return. But what we do know is that one day, our ears are going to be deafened by the sounds of the shouts of angels. We are going to hear a distinct trumpet sound. We're going to look around. We're going to look up and we're going to see the clouds part. And we're going to, send Je- we're going to see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his might drop down to earth and take up his throne. We know that day is coming no matter how evil are the days in which we live. And so it's kind of like this in Elijah's days. I don't know where Elijah. God is still in control of all the evil that is going on. Elijah means my God is Yahweh. It's an appropriate name for Elijah. I think it's safe to say from the little we know of Elijah that he was praying for this day. Not that he would be the one that would have to stand before Ahab. But I think he was praying that these evil days would end. I think he was done with the, the evil that was flourishing. I think he was done with the rise of Baalism. I think he was saddened by the murder of the prophets. I think he knew he was a prophet and maybe his head was next. And so he had been praying, oh God, bring this to an end. God, bring justice. It's like the bowls of incense that are in the presence of God right now, which are the prayers of the saints, which are praying out to God. How long, oh God? And it's like Elijah had been praying that. And God taps him on the shoulder and says, you're my man for this time. And there's no vagueness about his word. I think there's significance to it, in fact. God will shut the heavens. No dew, no rain, until I say differently. What we begin to know about Elijah, he doesn't speak very often uh, in Kings, but every time he speaks, it's God's word. Elijah is a prophet of God. And what do prophets do? They speak the word of God. And so by saying that, he was, this is God speaking. There will be no dew and no rain until I say differently. It's significant. Firstly, it's significant because it tells us that the covenant curses of God are now about to be fulfilled. Here's another reminder that the word of God never fails. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it talks there about what will happen if Israel walks away from God and serves the idols around him. It says there, The heavens over your head shall be bronze, and the earth under your feet shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. What he's saying here, once again, is God's word is being fulfilled right before their eyes. Just as it was when they rebuilt the walls of Jericho, now it's being fulfilled in the fact that there will be no dew or rain. But secondly, this is a clear clear attack on Baal. This is not a shot over the bow. This is a direct hit in who they believed Baal was. Remember I said he was the storm god. He was the one who sent dew and rain. God is saying, you think Baal is in charge? You think I'm just restricted to somewhere down in Egypt? I'll show you different. And in fact, I love what Elijah says. He he says, first of all, I stand before God. What a great description of our posture. We stand before God, not our idols. But he says, I stand before the God who lives. That's the difference between God and Baal. Read Jeremiah 10. God is the living God. God is the one who sends the rain, who makes the dew to appear 
on the grass. This was a direct shot at who they believed Baal was and what he provided for them. The living God. Remember what Hebrews says? It's a wonderful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. That's not what it says. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. One writer put it this way. He says, To see him, Elijah, appear, reminds us that we need not despair when we see great movements of evil achieving spectacular success on this earth. For we may be sure that God in unexpected places has already secretly prepared his counter-movement. God has always his ways of working underground to undermine the stability of evil. God can raise men and women for his servants from nowhere. Therefore, he continues, the situation is never hopeless where God is concerned. Wherever evil flourishes, it is always a superficial flourish. For at the height of the triumph of evil, God will be there ready with his man, his movement, and his plans to ensure that his own cause will never fail. Loved ones, I hope you're encouraged by this today. And I hope this fills you with hope. If there's anything that we need to be thinking about, it is simply Paul's encouragement to then the Corinthians, flee from idolatry. Do not trust in your idols. Secondly, trust in God's word. Don't doubt it. Don't disbelieve it. Don't live as though it will not come to pass. Finally, stand. Stand up straight before the living God of Parksville, British Columbia, of North America, of this world, of this universe. He is the living God. Father, we thank you for your word today, for the way that it continues to speak into our lives today. It certainly had a direct impact in the day in which it was first heard. It continued to have an effect on the people as they heard it in Babylon. It has been helpful to the people of God throughout the church age, and it is helpful for us today. Spirit of God, would you work in each of the hearts here in your own unique way? Whatever we need to hear, um, give us ears to hear, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.